0: Thank you for joining us for
1: another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Ann W. Smith, co-chair with Lynn Curtis of the Club's Arts Forum, and your organizer for this program. We also welcome our listening audience, and we invite everyone to visit us online at Commonwealth Club. I'm so delighted to have our speaker tonight join us, Jeff Rez, author of The Secret Life of Clowns and The Snow Clown, Cartwheels on Borders from Alaska to Nebraska, is our speaker tonight. Jeff is, in addition to being an author, is an American clown, an actor, teacher, and director, and he lives in Alameda nearby. He started performing professionally at the age of 15, working as a juggler in Renaissance fairs, circuses, and on the streets. He's performed nationally and internationally for decades, starring in circuses such as Cirque du Soleil, Pickle Family Circus, and more, and plays, including Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors on Broadway. He is a graduate of Del Arte International in Blue Lake, California, the author of 15 plays and the director of dozens of circus and theater productions. He co-founded Vaudeville Nouveau in 1982, San Francisco New Vaudeville Festival in 1985, the Clown Conservatory in 2000, and he founded the Bay Area-based Medical Clown Project in 2010 which, through the therapeutic art of play and humor, medical clowns, specially trained, help patients and their families reduce fear and anxiety while increasing their strength and motivation to cope with illness. Well, Jeff continues every day to write, perform, direct, and teach, as well as work globally as a communications consultant. So tonight he'll give us an inside view of life on the road, on stage and off, in a plane, no, <laughs> around the borders of states from mostly the United States. And he is a wonderful human being who cares about making the world a better place. So I'm thrilled to introduce our speaker for tonight, Jeff Raz.
2: Thank you, Anne. Thank you. When you think of a circus, if you ever think of circus, and I know you were thinking of Cirque du Soleil, you probably think of that big Cirque du Soleil tent, maybe a small tent, an arena, possibly, or a theater. Circuses also happen in hospitals, in parks, in intersections, on street intersections in Mexico, for example, in refugee camps, circuses are ubiquitous, especially the clowning. And when you're traveling with a circus, you end up in a, a little community that's traveling within other communities. And, and some of those tours, you become part of those other communities. So you are the classic stranger in a strange land. And sometimes those strange lands are El Cerrito <laughs> or Burlingame. But in, sometimes those strange lands are, for example, a Yupik Eskimo village on the Kuskokwim River in southwest Alaska in the middle of winter, or a, a high school somewhere in rural Nebraska. And, and those two particular places are where I want to focus today. As Ann mentioned, thank you for that introduction. Uh, this book, The Snow Clown, is, focuses on an artist as a stranger in a strange land. And, and I want to start, um, I was going to start with the cold, but I think we're just going to assume the cold there. I will, I'll give you the, the, the idea of how one travels in Alaska. First, in, in the 1980s, the Alaska Arts Council had a lot of money, unlike the California Arts Council or almost any of the other 49 states because of the oil pipeline. Alaska had that reverse income tax. Instead of paying in, you got you got paid, depending on how long you'd live there. So they were hiring a lot of programs to go out into rural, very remote areas in the schools to teach. And many from San Francisco. Made sense. We had a very vibrant art scene here, everything from operatic music to circus. And we could just fly right up to Anchorage and then out. The center of operations in the program that that I worked in, and this book is based on, is Bethel, which is the big city of the tundra. There's 4,000 people in Bethel. And and you you fly on bush planes from there. So, for example, we'd pack uh, 21 bags of stilts, juggling balls, costumes, makeup, and you put it in a little bush plane. Um, I got to counterbalance the yeah. equipment. So I, I sat in front and my clown partner sat in back. And uh, if you've ever been in those little Cessnas, they have two steering wheels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I sometimes got to fly, which I didn't get to land or take off. I can guarantee you that. But ooh. <laughs> it's, it's fun. And it's about negative 20 to negative 40 still air plus the wind chill. And for Californians, that's a little odd, and especially today when it hit 100 uh, above, it's odd. Often you'd land on, on the frozen river, the Kuskokwim or the Yukon River, because they, the, the village hadn't cleared the landing strip since the last snow. And, and then unload. The, the bush pilot would always remind you, don't get out while the propeller's still spinning and would always have a story. Oh, there was that guy,, yeah. <laughs> he got out two hamburger, you know, and you would just sit there. <laughs> oh and then they'd fly away. Oh. And you're on a river in the middle of the tundra, and there's a village half a mile away, and it's really, really, really cold, and your equipment is there. You wonder if someone knows you're coming, because <laughs> there's only one phone in the village in those days. Do they remember? And mm-hmm. then you start walking. And eventually someone comes with a sled and a snow machine and picks up the equipment. That's the setup, and that sort of happens every week. That's the weekly, and then you wait to to fly back home in the same manner, hopefully not waiting outside. It's not like a lift. So that's got us to Alaska, and I want to start off with uh, a show in a village. I think this is self-explanatory and should set up some of the conversation I'm hoping to have uh, this evening. Our first village, Akiacek, welcomed us with the now standard swarm of kids, followed by a wonderfully unstandard salmon dinner at the home of one of the teachers. Delicious food, but awkward conversations about the struggle between Mormon missionaries, our host, and those Moravians who were trying to steal Eskimo souls away from the true path. Apparently, every white person in the village was there on a mission. Most of Akicek came to see us that Monday night, a few hundred folks sitting in the bleachers and on the gym floor to watch our clown show. In the part where Tina, my clown partner, chases me into the audience, I hid by sitting in the lap of an old woman dressed in a cuspak, the traditional Eskimo dress made of colorful gingham fabric, finished with lots of rickrack. The old woman grabbed my ass hard and said something in Yupik that got the biggest laugh of the evening. As I tried to get back to stage, every old lady on the row copped a (laughs) feel. They have very strong fingers out on the tundra. At the end of the show, we got a long ovation that turned into synchronized clapping that got faster and faster. We exited behind the wrestling mats we'd upended to make a backdrop, gave each other a high five and started to pack up our equipment. It got very quiet. We peeked out to see the whole crowd sitting patiently, staring at our empty makeshift stage. We took another bow to scattered applause and exited again. No one moved. Tina grabbed her concertina, threw me three balls and said, you juggle, I'll play. We did a quick encore, got some more applause, but no one got up to go. We invited the kids to join us on stage and gave them scarves so they could show off the juggling they'd learned in class that day. Then we walked through the audience shaking hands. No one left. Finally, we played another song, waved goodbye and went backstage. Eventually, folks started trickling out of the gym. We found out later that Eskimo dancing is very popular in this area. And the traditional way for an audience to reward a good dancer is by clapping in rhythm, getting faster and faster until they do their whole dance again, only faster. Superstar Eskimo dancers sometimes do a dozen encores ending in a frenzied sweat. Clearly we didn't get the message. I found that one of the things about writing a book rather than a play is that you don't get the joy of having the actors interpreting it in between meeting the audience. With a book, you think you know what you've written, or at least I do, and then people start reading it. One of the first book readings a few months ago, someone said, you know, that story sets up all the other cultural misunderstandings, which we'll go through. They They get... they get gnarlier. But I didn't even think of that as a cultural misunderstanding until he pointed it out. But it, it's really basic. You've got two professional performers who know from experience, both their own on stage, but their own as an audience, that at the end, you bow, they applaud, you exit, they go home. It always happens that way. Of course, the audience, who'd lived their whole life in AccuCheck, knew that when something is good, you applaud. You applaud faster and they do it again. And if you really like them, you do it again, Mm -hmm. completely missing each other. So, uh, I want to check in with you. Hello, Paul, come on, come on down. You can sit with your family. Oh, you don't want to sit with your family. Okay. Just as long as we're clear on that. All right. We're going to have a little cultural exchange over here in a moment. Uh, but I do want to ask, and this is a moment for the microphone. I'm imagining that all of you at some point have found yourself a stranger in a strange land. And again, it could be, uh, I mean, it could be walking into this building if you're a member, a member of the club and hadn't been here, or it could be someplace far away. Who's got, raise your hand. If you have a, a moment when you realize, wow, I, I don't understand this place, wherever I am, I just don't get the norms here. Uh, Joni. Yeah.
3: I was in Mexico uh-huh. and went to a, I was in college and studying down there. I went to a party, and a woman introduced herself and said she had four kids. And I used my hand, palm down, as we do to measure heights. Oh, this one, this one, this one, this one. And as my hand went down, and she looked at me in horror, because in Mexico, this means that you think their child is stupid.
2: (laughs) And you're just holding your hand out the way we would show the height of, oh man, wow. So this, uh, I want to get another one, but just this idea. So in, in the Eskimo villages, there's a whole lot of nonverbal language. Words are considered only if you need them. And this means yes. Eyebrows. You're gonna commentate. Okay, this is the mime, and Anne will commentate. So, and and if if you mean yes, it's this. Of course, they don't. Just like at that party, they don't hand you a list. So we're doing a thing, and you know, kids, uh, you uh, you wanna you wanna do some acrobatics? Does anyone want to do some acrobatics? Do you do you want to do acrobatics? And you you're thinking, God, they're having eye problems. It must be a big exactly this this is you who has another one uh any anything long far away or or near where you found yourself i just don't quite get what's going on here you are all smarter than i am by a long shot <laughs> you get and do you In did you China
1: i remember traveling and <laughs> we went the the western group of us we we were directed towards Uh, the soft seat car and there are all these people gathered in the waiting room and and so i i thought well don't we have to wait for them no no You're, you're the privileged few and so we got to we were led through all these people desperately wanting a seat to our easy seating on the soft seat
2: car. <laughs> I like that. So this is, that's a very particular one where you have privilege as a, as, as a foreigner of some kind. And uh, I think for many of us, that can be a really uncomfortable moment. Uh, because if you, didn't, if you turned down those seats, you would be disrespecting your handlers. Yeah. Uh, if you took those seats, you're feeling like, what am I? It's not really congruent with my view of, of this world. Um, but I think, I think you really get to a, a there's a, a crux there where y- your moral framework and their moral framework, and, if, and you're not quite sure what they what's really going on. What's the moral framework going on here? It's a little deeper than the gesture, which is mortifying in the moment. This is, I get it. I get what's going on, but I, I can't sort it out. <laughs> Did you have Crap! You got to grab the mic.
4: <laughs> and you're looking like, oh no, this is. going We to were world. in Africa and went to a, an area which was not used to having uh, Westerners there, mm-hmm. and were there with just one uh, local that was. It was in a Maasai uh, area, and we went to um, a, a home which had no furniture outside. Uh, until we got there, and when we got there, then all of a sudden, two chairs appeared from inside to be set out, always carefully in the shade so that the visitors were in the shade. And then after that, and this was in uh, maybe 10 o'clock in the morning, then out came a great big pot of what looked like mud, but actually was homemade beer. And we were offered uh, some homemade beer that didn't look very appealing, and we were too stupid to know that that was uh, impolite on our part not to accept it. Mm-hmm. So we, we made social errors at two other uh, homes that morning. Then we got to the third or fourth place and also appearing was not the, the usual muddy beer, but a, a, a yellow beer in a bottle from a store. And the word had gone around the village, which which was at some distance apart. It was not exactly, ex- they weren't right next to each other. So somehow the the local telegraph had said that these folks don't get it, and we, they don't like our beer, so we'll have to do something different. So we were embarrassed enough to finally have to enjoy their morning beer, because that's what's how they welcome people in, in that part of uh, Africa.
2: Wow, thank you. Yeah. And, and yes, I love that, because... It, you're missing everybody's missing everybody i'm reading i'm interpreting what's going on the facts were you went someplace they brought out this stuff and you said no thanks i'm not thirsty that's the fact their story is oh man they don't like our stuff they don't like okay better tell people so that they get them store-bought your thought is i don't know what it is and i don't drink beer at 10 o'clock in the morning but thanks anyway i'll sit in the shade that my story their story and the facts um, uh, when I, when I do corporate consulting, that becomes the, the crux, that idea becomes the crux of just about any difficult conversation. Y- y- uh, you can imagine it within a corporate setting, a uh, 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 someone's direct report ha- is not doing their job the right way, uh, my story, their story, the facts, and it's, it's tough work even when everybody is from the same town and working in the same organization. It's very hard for me to understand that my story isn't the facts. Mm-hmm. There's also, I uh, won't go into this, but there's all this attribution where I attribute my behaviors to deeply held beliefs. And then mm, accidents. I it was a mistake. I attribute yours to who you are. So uh, you're, you you have not been getting whatever it is on time. I know it's not you who have, but I'm just choosing you, but okay. So you have not been getting, you haven't been getting stuff in on time. I attribute my need for it to be on time for the fact that, that I'm clear and clean and, I, and, I, and I'm prompt. And I attribute it to you because you're basically lazy. You know that you haven't been getting the information from the other people in order and you get it pretty close to on time, which is good. Consider how little information. Totally different. And we're going to miss until we get My to internet it. is down. Thank you. I, was, I thought that's what it was, but Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the real reason. And your cat ate your modem, which is just <laughs> terrible. So I want to read. Uh, um, there's a few sections. This book was written in the first person. Uh, and if any of you have done writing first person, it, there's a nice flow to first person, especially if you're, there's a name for what I do now. I just read it, which is auto fiction auto not auto not about auto but auto fiction you make up stuff about your own life which is what i've been doing since i was very very young and it's what my children seem to be very good at as well but it's um it's it's what this is called but i I, very late in the process of this book my editor wrote me an email my editor lives in uganda he's he's from san francisco but he married a ugandan woman so we don't Visit very often, but we send emails back and forth. And I thought he wrote me an email saying, "Consider writing some little third-person vignettes from the other points of view." Turns out I completely misunderstood his email, but thank God because I liked doing that. So this is a—I I think there was a little bit of risk in this one, and you'll see why. But I was trying to get to this "my story, your story" concept. Two grandmothers sit on folding chairs in the corner, watching the kids. They know them all, of course, but the whitened faces make it hard to tell who's who. Your grandson is good on those stilts. Martha speaks in Yupik with a slight accent she picked up as a teenager at Indian school. Over there, that's Eddie, Paula's grandson. You're even more blind than I thought. Ann Evans grew up in Akichek and hasn't left, except for an occasional potlatch in a neighboring village since she got back from Oklahoma. That was over 40 years ago. My son Jason is near the door, like acting like his father after a few beers. Martha looks over where Ann is pointing and sees a gaggle of boys tripping on purpose, falling down and laughing. I see him. He's making a fool of himself. Ann says, that's what gussic clowns taught him to do, act like a drunken Eskimo. Martha makes clucking noises and shakes her head. White people never cease to amaze her. She came to the school today to paint faces so she could keep an eye on the clowns. She wants to see what they're making the kids do. She never likes strangers in the village, even the school teachers. And these clowns are worse than the teachers. No one ever said that to me. And we made the assumption that we were bringing the beauty of laughter and joy. and, And the kids loved doing acrobatics. They were very good at it had a kid learn to ride a unicycle forward and backwards in one day. That's impossible. Uh, So it just seemed, and then the whole village came to the show and they were loving on the kids. But if you look a little deeper, that's my story. Maybe, Maybe those grandmas, whatever that woman who pinched me said, uh, may have not have been a sweet thing. I assume she said something about, you oh, he's got a nice ass, but, uh, she may have said something very, very different yeah. and, uh, I would never know. So I decided to try to get inside of their heads and see, wow. see what might be happening. Uh, I think, I think you figured out if you have any thoughts or questions, ask them as we go. I'll also do a little Q and A at the end. Um. I am going to get to some ideas of how to manage these. It occurs to me that at this point you might be going, okay, we're just going to go downhill into these more and more problems. And then we'll come back up the other side, but I do want to go a little deeper down. I'm going to set the stage. The middle part of the books is set in Nebraska and it isn't just because the, it rhymes with Alaska though. That was very convenient. Uh, The middle part is taken from a time in the nineties when I was an artist in residence in an amazing program at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. The problem this program was designed to solve was we have a big, diverse university in the middle of the state that is full of tiny towns that are homogeneous beyond what we even think of as homogeneous. The towns are not just, oh, it's all white. The town, everyone in that town is from Sweden, seventh, eighth generation. And from a particular town in Sweden, seventh or eighth generation, and a particular sect. So that was really isolated. So a kid comes from there and goes to the university at 18. It's mind-blowing. And things don't go smoothly at all. uh, University of of Nebraska-Lincoln is a huge land-grant university with people from all over the world. So the, the answer was bring in artists, which makes it, one of the most forward thinking programs that I've seen to this day. And I worked with them 20 plus years ago to bring an artist. So they bring in a, a trumpet player from, from Texas, uh, a Mohawk poet and, uh, a Jewish clown. And, and that worked. I loved it. I did mostly, I took a show that I had a solo show that was based on my father, who was, uh, a, a, a soldier in world war II. He was in the infantry, and he was a photographer. And uh, 20 years later, uh, when I was eight, he killed himself. And those uh, things had never been put together in family lore. But I was visiting Dachau, which is now, if you've ever been to Dachau in Germany, outside of Munich, it's, a, it's in a museum, a quite sanitized museum, but still pretty heavy, heavy day's visit. Um, you can only get there with by two buses. You have to transfer buses. It's not. It's purposely not easy to get there. But once you're there, you see some some stuff. And while I was there, I thought, oh, man, these pictures that are all over the place. I wonder if my dad took one of these pictures. So that was the beginning point for a play. And then I took that play to Nebraska, which quite surprised me. I didn't think that's where the audience for that play was going to be, but it, it, it worked. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read a, a section later that's more focused on the play they would send me in t- after they got to trust me after a few visits, they would send me into any class. Oh, you're going to a law class today. Great. That makes perfect. You're going to a literature class. Good. Okay. Let have, uh, y- y- you're going to work with student teachers and wherever they want. And then after they gotten that going, they said, well, let's send him out. So I'd go on these tours of rural Nebraska, which I don't know if the students I work with learn anything. I learned a lot. And this was on one of those days. And uh, where we went, uh, this was a tour, just a day trip to the Omaha nation public school, which is on the Omaha reservation. And it's in the town of Macy, Nebraska. And I was told as we were getting out of the car, it was voted the worst high school in the country a few years before. So we're inside. Karen Anderson is in her first month of teaching, and from the size and color of the bags under her eyes, it's been a hard month. Her classroom is postered with presidents, maps, and other images from European American history. A couple of students are hanging around before class, so Karen introduces me to one of them, a rotund junior named Vernon Wolfe. Vernon's face is pear-shaped with a couple of jowly chins and ears as big as Buddha's. My first thought is he looks like an ox. His expression is distinctly bovine. He asks me, why are you here? Sounding completely bored. I'm with a program out of the University of Nebraska, and I'm teaching here today. Oh, what do you teach? His monotone flattens out an accent that would be at home in an Eskimo village. I'm going to teach storytelling today. I'll tell some stories, and then I'll invite you to tell your stories. Oh. Do we get paid for our stories? Looking at his lifeless face, I'm beginning to wonder if Vern is developmentally delayed. I laugh and say, no, we'll just share stories, learn about each other. I'd like to learn about your life here on the Omaha reservation. Vernon's face instantly comes to life, sharp eyes, a little smile on his lips. And he says, without a trace of an accent, I bet you get paid for your stories, don't you? I blush and, stutter out something ridiculous about working for the university, which means I have to get paid before I'm done. Vernon's face is back to its dumb Indian mask. Oh, I understand. Thanks. That's pretty much verbatim. That's not auto fiction. That's autobiography. And the shocking thing for me, uh, being (laughs) the person walking through that was I'd already spent 10 10 different trips in Eskimo villages, supposedly learning these lessons. I had a long talk with a friend of mine who is from Germany. He's lived in the United States and he married a woman in Japan and lived in Japan for seven years. And he says, there's this thing about cultural competency. But I got to tell you, in my experience, I'm culturally completely incompetent, but I try really hard. And, and we were looking at that fact that, and he says, and I agree with him, you, you can only be, culturally curious and culturally humble. Those are really the, the options. You're not going to be culturally competent all the time. Um, This case, uh, humility was really embarrassment uh, as who I don't know. it, I made up a name for, for Vernon, but um, I'm sure Vernon was a little happy. He, he, he got the teacher during the day. I sure wasn't. I mean, I was a little mortified that that, and I tried to say what went through my mind uh, during that. OK, I think I've set up some of these issues. Um, but let me say, any questions, grab that mic, be ready. A- any questions or thoughts about this idea around um, how cultures meet? And I'm, I'm looking at particularly from an artist's point of view, but I do think they translate. Well, We think about the beer and the, the kids and the, the, the soft seats in China, they, none of those are artistic frameworks, but they all are cultural frameworks.
0: You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program.
2: Any thoughts or questions? And you can go big idea or you can ask About the snow, Uh, wherever you want to go. Anyone? We have a thought right here.
0: My son has volunteered with Zip Zap Circus, which comes from South Africa. They absolutely do. To DC. And I just think the interesting this is not really what you're talking about, Uh but the fact that these kids are learning trust and that it seems to be the focus of what you can fall, you can climb, Uh you can do these things. And I I guess all I'm saying is I respect the
2: circus. Yeah, good. But you actually, there was a lot in there because... You were making the metaphor, because uh, I know Zipzac Circus, uh, they do a lot of acrobatics, and it's yeah. some wonderful acrobatics. There's a particular style, mainly in Western Africa, but uh, in Southern Africa has picked up some of that style too. The style of acrobatics that basically goes to, you make an impossible thing, and the last guy is usually a little guy, comes flying into it, but you don't hold it. Like an American circus, I used to do a, a four high, four people, and you'd stand and you'd hold it. And everyone, when you held it, it was cheer. In the African style, you don't hold it. You just hit it and fall out of it in a cool way. It's also always based on music, in my experience. Uh, now, some of the Zipzak clown acts are not, but they have music in them because there's music. The separation between dance, music, and in this case, acrobatics is, is non-existent.
0: But it's these little kids yeah. from D.C., learning to do this. oh through zip, Zap. I mean, zip Zap is teaching.: i love it i love
2: it and uh, this metaphor and of they,
0: and then they perform the end of the week the nice. kids are performing
2: well the zip Zap is doing with them what we used to do yeah, up yeah. In, in yeah um the this it really is true it's not just metaphoric but when you do acrobatics like, i was an acrobat before i was an actor and when actors talk about oh, it's a risk on stage, if you're an acrobat, you go, yeah, I get it. It's emotional <laughs> risk on stage. And none of us are going to the hospital tonight. We're <laughs> yeah, really clear. Yeah. But there's something uh, amazing, especially um, for, for a young person who's learned the physical risk within a framework that has history and a safety code. I mean, that, all of that is what circus is.
0: Well, my son was a stagehand. Oh. So he was the one up tying the riggings and doing that kind of thing. And that was, yeah,
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: that scared him he, because they were the little kids.
2: <laughs> now, he wasn't a stage, if he was up there, he's not a stagehand, he's a rigger. He was a rigger. Yeah, so in, right. the, in, the right. circus, right. in the circus world, stagehand is that right. person who hands you the prop. We like them, okay. Rigger is the person who keeps us all alive. We like them a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if we don't, we fake it. <laughs> Jonah, you had a thought or question?
3: Well, I was thinking you don't have to go very far to experience the differences. I was thinking of my dad who lives in a a, a home where people take care of him mm-hmm. twenty four hours a yeah. day. And when he first moved in, I said, um, "They said, okay, we want him to have a lot of water. What else does he like to drink?" I said, "Well, he likes soda." And they brought it, and I said, "Oh, he likes it cold. Um, can you put ice in it?" And they looked at me like, "Really?" And I I went to the freezer, and there were three maybe 10-year-old ice cubes in the freezer. And uh, they explained they were Filipino. And in the Philippines, you don't use a lot of ice. Ice sometimes is a very, sometimes a Western um, feature. And they looked at me like I was crazy for wanting ice. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was, you know, 10 minutes from my house. Right.
0: Right. And, and
3: the other thought I had was sometimes though when you talk about cultural communication or curiosity, what you know that when the other person isn't curious about your culture.
0: Right.
3: I, I find a lot of times it's just one way. Mm-hmm. And that's a little awkward mm-hmm. too sometimes where nobody wants to know about your culture, but you right. want to know all about theirs.
2: I I think actually I think that's That's a really tough one. Um, Sometimes when I work with people on how to have great conversations, they say, that's wonderful. Now I'm good at it. Could you now go train the person I'm mad at so that we can have a good conversation? Uh, But, uh, well, the two of you were board members of the Medical Clown Project, and I learned a lot about exactly this. Medical clowns, specially trained professional clowns in a hospital setting or healthcare setting. And in San Francisco hospitals, there are probably hundreds of languages spoken. And the room, especially on pediatrics, but also for adults, has become a, 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 it's, its own culture. And when you come in, you're not exactly sure. There may be some indicators. Maybe not. Maybe you've heard some Russian as you come in. Uh, and you get to start to get your feelers out. But how do you quickly adjust to that culture? And in that case, you as the medical clown are the one getting paid to do the adjusting. So it's 100% on you. They got enough problems. They got a sick kid. They are sick themselves. They got a sick parent. They've got a sick relative. So it's all on you. But in a more social setting, um, how, how do you make that work? I do. I still, I, I, I've fallen in love with this idea of curiosity and humility becomes the core. And um, when, that, when that happens to me, I might try to turn it around and say, well, wow, this is great because I'm learning everything in this. I'm going to learn so much and sorry for them. They aren't they aren't going to know. And that lasts for a while. And yeah, until something else happens. Thank you for that. I, I do want to move to, um, some possible approaches to these, these issues of, 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 missing. And as I had promised earlier, this is at the end of a section of, uh, from this play that I'd mentioned earlier. And this is a section that's, uh, it's kind of heavy. The, it's a ghost of the father is talking in this section. And there's this, the protagonist is doing sections, just a, a scene from this play at a different, different class, as I'd mentioned. The lights go down. I pick up the metal chair and sit down. The theater is silent. It's Monday morning. I'm on my third week here and determined to let the students talk first. A full minute passes. Another minute. Nebraskans are Olympians when it comes to silence. <laughs> they win. It's a literar- literature class. So I said, have any of you read a short young woman in a red track suit sporting a blonde bouffant interrupts, did your daddy really kill himself? No. I have learned enough to just answer the question. Yes. How old were you? I was eight. I'm sorry. Thanks. I let the silence sit. Resisting the urge to try to talk about theater or literature. Eventually, the young woman says, my daddy died when I was 15 and cancer. He was sick a long time. I'm sorry about your father. Thanks. Your story made me think of him because he rode a motorcycle, an Indian, an old one, dark red with a leather seat. Yeah, I miss him. I miss my dad, too. A friend hands the young woman a tissue and we're quiet for a while. Eventually, a huge guy, who I assume is a lineman for the Cornhuskers, raises his hand. And when I nod to him, he says, my grandpa was in the war. His base drawl is from the deep south. World War II, infantry. He never talks about it, though. My dad didn't either. Then how'd you get the information for your play? My mom gave me some letters. My dad wrote home from Germany and I remembered some things from when I was a kid, like the motorcycle, I made up the rest. You can do that. Just make stuff up. Yes, you can. That's what an artist does, but it's dangerous. My brother hates this play fatherland. He said, I got it wrong about the motorcycle that, that daddy was just going to take us to Rochester, New York, not to California. kids talk some more. Some cry. They ask me a few questions, but mainly I listen. 30 minutes go by. The class is over, but no one leaves. We're talking about our families. We're talking about art. We're talking about pain, and we're laughing together. The theater feels small and cozy. Eventually, the students trickle out. I end up talking to the big lineman until we notice students coming in for the next class. Before he leaves, the big guy gives me a bear hug. Thank you, man. That was a great class. That idea that when you're on stage, you're not necessarily there to supply the answers Mm -hmm. was almost physically painful to learn. Mm -hmm. You know, you're getting paid to be there. You've just done this. Clearly, they hate you because they're staring at you fill the void with something. Good, let's talk about something out there. And this uh, earlier on uh, the, I would start to bring up something about constructing a play. Okay, it's a literature class. That makes sense. We can and they would ask about my family. And I'm thinking, no, no, you're missing it. That's the that's the content of the play. We're talking about the structure. Who cares? <laughs> This idea that you wait and let them talk and go where they might want to go. So in a way it's diving into double downing on on what you're saying, which is, yeah, it is actually all about them. Now, in this case, it was all about me for a while because I was up there doing the play. And now it's all about them and it's not going to go the way I expect it to go. It's a good moment to check in on this idea of silence, which I have found, and again in this, in my coaching, corporate coaching, I find really, people struggle with it. Just struggle with being silent. And people will admit it. Oh, yeah. Silence freaks me out. Uh, I mean, just, let me just say, how many people find that? Is silence? silence can freak you out. I'm genuinely raising my hand. Silence can freak me out sometimes. You're comfortable with silence. <laughs> she's staring. For those of you on the radio, she's staring at me silently. <laughs> I know it sounds paradoxical, but say something about silence, would you? <laughs> How do you use it? How do you get comfortable with it?
0: If I don't have an answer, I don't answer.
2: That's great. It seems that simple. I don't know. For me, that's much harder. I, yeah, yeah, Anne.
1: I feel for the absence of silence. You know. Say like more. Today, just, you used to be able to go to Nordstrom's, and you could find a quiet place in the lounge. And now, this god awful music uh, is constantly playing everywhere in the store. And I said, Is there no escape? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I came to the Commonwealth <laughs> Club before our meeting, because I knew there would be a place to be quiet. You seek out silence after a while.
2: It's interesting. Yeah. I think about um, sports events. There used to be the silence between innings, but now it's, uh, it's, it's really loud in restaurants. It's also the visual noise of, of screens in, in restaurants. That's interesting. It is it just one of, the si- one of the hallmarks of being out on the tundra, especially in winter, is the silence. It's, it's this vast visual silence, and just it's just quiet, um, which I think when kids, when kids are grown up in a tiny town, they often want to get out. But a kid growing up in that lifestyle in the Eskimo villages or in Nebraska, uh, when they get out, it's freaky. <laughs> and I'm guessing that the visual noise, even going into Fairbanks, which isn't that big of a town, or Bethel, the town of four thousand, uh, the noise level is different, the visual level is different, and the the pace is different. Any other thoughts or questions? I, want, I have one uh, one more that that I want to read, but I, before that, I want to make sure. Yeah. Several thoughts. I'll try. Great.
5: I'll get to the point. Okay. I have many thoughts. Being an actor and singer, that's still my side hustle. One of the tricky things is, in other languages, jokes. (laughs) Right? So my husband is a Zurichwa, so Swiss German. And I would have these, what I thought were amazing jokes. He would translate to my in-laws, silence. Doesn't translate. Not funny. And I think I'm terribly funny. So that's one thing. As a musician, I think we can cro- cross a lot of barriers because we merge all sorts of things. Like I just mm-hmm. went to see Pavarotti by Ron Howard. I loved it. So I learned so much about Pavarotti, and he was so criticized for coming outside of the opera box. Right. So I started an opera, which is a very small box. And he brought in... Bono, right? He was great friends with Princess Diana. Just a lot of things. Moving to silence, I tend to jump all over the place. In the Swiss Alps, the first time I visited there, 1984, the silence was profound, because I would just open the windows And they would wonder what I was doing. I was just listening to that silence. I also experienced that on a plantation in Louisiana, way, way out of New Orleans. Profound silence, so much that I couldn't sleep. Mm. It was amazing. I'm not sure what else I was going to say. I'll stop now.
2: That was great. Thank you. Thank you. I do think, uh, I don't know about you, when I, I, I visit New York and I love being in New York and the first night, it's not the actual noise, it's the, the energy of the city. Uh, but people who live in New York go out and try to sleep in the country and find exactly, um, there's a, there's, I'm comfortable in a certain sound cushion. I want to read this last one, offering another, uh, another thought about, another technique. This is actually a, a very specific technique, I'll give you the setup. I was, after I was in Nebraska for a while, they started saying, would you create a play with uh, a group of students? That seemed actually more fun than going to high schools in the middle of it. And so I said, yeah. So uh, this is a, uh, a play. The first one. There's quite a bit of uh, offensive language from right off the top. So I say. Warning you, if you want to cover your ears, this would be a good moment to do it. So this is chapter 28, playing with fire. Kike. Yes. Good one. I write K-I-K-E up on the whiteboard under hook nose and killer of Jesus. In the next column, we've got raghead and terrorist. And in the final column has redneck and white trash. Let's get some more. It's Monday morning, week four of my Nebraska tour, and I'm on a new project working with seven students to write and perform a show that celebrates Easter, Passover and Ramadan all at once. We have a performance Sunday night and a week to write and rehearse. We need to get the ugliest language, the words that have powered crusades and bombings and gas chambers. We need those words in the open before we start looking for common ground. Most of the students are nodding, so I go on. We have to be honest with each other and ourselves about the power of these words over our thoughts and feelings. And then we have to forgive each other when we offend. Luckily, we're in Nebraska, so we know everything will stay polite. A couple of the small-town kids make sarcastic remarks about Nebraska nice. No, 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 nice is good. In San Francisco, for all our tie-dyed grooviness, we like nothing better than a rip-roaring political fight not helpful for what we're trying to do here. I point to our lists on the whiteboard. Our job is to politely talk about really nasty, gnarly, vicious ideas, tell each other stories, write a play from these stories, and perform it on Sunday night. Easy. Easy. They smile and we spend another hour on our lists, laughing at some words, getting very quiet when a slur hits home. And after lunch, we start to teach each other our different rituals. This idea that you do need to dive into the really murky, nasty stuff together with some forgiveness, uh, is, is a tough one right now from what I find, especially among younger folks who consider themselves woke, there's a real danger in going the wrong way, saying the wrong thing. So it's much safer to not go there. In a corporate setting, people, you know, that's an HR issue, it's, it, you know, which means basically you shut up about it. And yet, it can often be a, a, a cultural misunderstanding can, or many cultural misunderstandings, especially in Silicon Valley, can be the root of exactly what's not going well with any, any given organization. How could people have those conversations, which probably help to be facilitated? It's hard to have those in the heat of the moment, not with a third party at some point. But without them, it festers. The, the, that world festers. Uh, the last technique thought I have, uh, besides this idea of, of silence, this idea, and letting the others talk, this idea of having to talk about the tough stuff, using the real words, um, knowing you're going to get offended and, and a little Nebraska nice was hugely helpful. Thank you. Uh, I also, I did a second play. I did a bunch of plays. I, I was asked to do a play with the architecture department, which is where plays are never done. (laughs) And what it was, was they, I was to write seven little playlets Before I arrived, and they were going to design little uh, outdoor places that weren't the set for that play, but kind of were the play, and an actor was going to stand next. It actually worked out, but it was the craziest, weirdest project. That's not what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about a different one that I did. I was asked to spend a month with student teachers who are about to go into the classroom. They were going to have their they had been student teachers, and next year they are going to be in the classroom. And of course, the first thing is I looked at them. Your high school students? How could you be in the class? But they weren't. They were actually going in, and uh, I had a whole month. So this was really. And they said, "Don't worry about the the diversity part of it. Really, it's the art part. We want them to be able to make plays with their students to have a little more sense of an artistic process. So really, get into the writing process and then the rehearsal process, and and then the performance. So they really know that." I said, "Okay, good." I was kind of exhausted with all the kike and raghead. And, and so, but the, I didn't have an idea for a theme. You still need a theme. Yeah. You know. And the day before I opened uh, the daily Nebraska and there had been a cross burning at a, uh, at, a at a fraternity. I thought, well, wow, that's bizarre. So I open, I start to read it. And the first thing is the attorney general of the state says, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised when I was in that fraternity years ago, we burned a cross every year, I think. And then the head of the Greek society said, this is really a problem. From now on, nobody talks about your rituals outside of the fraternity. It just makes trouble. And then way down at the bottom, someone from the African-American Students Union said, this is really a problem. <laughs> so I said, oh, well, there's my theme. All right. So, we had, so what happened was it turned out of my cast of 26 who did not choose to be there. It was a class. I was assigned to them. One guy about halfway through the process mentioned that he had burned the cross. He was one of the people who burned the cross. Uh, He was by no means my most uh, out there uh, right wing guy in the class. He actually had really genuinely had no idea what cross burning meant. Um, And then I had one of the leaders of the African American Student Union. So I had this wild uh, mess of folks who didn't want to be with me. And early on, and we had a month together and early on, uh, I could feel it. You know, I was starting the same way. Let's talk about the real words and the real words. We're going to get really nasty very quickly. And uh, mm-hmm. so I and a lot of people, you could just see people flinching already in a second rehearsal. So I invented this thing called the offensive tick. I said, if if something offends you, go like this in the air, and I will get back to that because we'll let the flow of whatever's going in. But I'm going to make a note and we'll get back to that. Then all made sense the first few days they just did it you know, someone would say something purposely offensive and someone would go like this and troll, then, then i get back to it and they the said air. i don't even know what it was right. oh, until his finger in the air oh, oh <laughs> yeah. troll yeah
1: <finger. laughs>
2: uh, so it was friday you know first week of rehearsal was friday and we were supposed to go till eight at night and i'm feeling a little sorry for these guys so it's about 6 30 in rehearsal and i say uh I know it's it's Friday night. We're scheduled to go to eight, but your students—you probably got parties. So we're gonna we're gonna kick off a half hour early. <laughs> and I really went. Yes, I'm glad you did that, Johnny, because I went. And it's, oh, do students all party on a Friday night? Do they? Maybe we wanted to rehearse on Friday. You have a lot of bias about us, don't you? And they all united on me, and I. So I got to be. The, the butt end of the first offensive tick, which was gold. Because once I could take it, I, I knew I had to take it. I knew it for improv reasons some teaching reasons. Say, so, you are right. We're going till eight. I said, no, no, no. 7.30 was fine, man. <laughs> it was fine. We just wanted to point out. And I said, okay, good. But the fact that I took it and said, you are right. Uh, let me watch that. I, and, I, and I even tried to double down. I probably have some other thoughts about you. So be sure to do that. So, oh, he's serious about it. Even when he's on the bad end of it, and that, so we use that a lot. Twirly finger. The the, the yeah, I'm just going to keep doing this and make you do. No, stop doing it. Uh, so, I, I want to finish up with my thoughts there, and 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 try to use some of the silence as uh, any any. We have about five minutes left. Any any thoughts?
3: I teach individual students, and the silence. I have to be able to tolerate Mm. the discomfort of the silence because, you know, if you are waiting for a student to process something or come up with the answer, your instinct is to just give it to them and, you know, move it along quickly. And you have to regulate that impulse and tell yourself to shut up and (laughs) wait. But it's tolerating that discomfort Mm. of just, the waiting for the other person to process yeah. and that this, their job was to do the learning, not for me to do the teaching.
2: Yeah. Or for you to be comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's good. I like, I, I actually, it's yeah. sometimes I feel if I'm doing this reading and the book is all neatly written and it comes in and it's all bound and it finishes, it ends. Uh, and, and it makes it seem like, Oh, you do this stuff and it ends and it's all happily ever after. The truth is, there's a lot of discomfort. That, that's, that's, is, there, is
1: there a clownish response to, to silence?
2: I, that might have been it. I'd, I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he, he simply looked around and, in amazed wonder.
2: I don't really have a decent answer for that, so I, I, I turned it into a gag, which is a clown response. But I do know that when you're working professionally as a clown, you, of course, know the different types of laughter. You've better know the different types of laughter, not by category, but just you feel what kind of laugh you want. What were you expecting? How is it different? But you also feel the different kinds of silence and there are different kinds of silence and you better know them. I don't know. Maybe as a singer. You, you need to know that too. That silence of high, high expectation or that silence of, I am not is, <laughs> here. All right. I'm going to end. I'm going to end uh, with a little juggling here. And, uh, I, I just want to start. I mentioned, or Anne mentioned, that I started as a street juggler. And when you when you start as a juggler, the the issue is that when you make a mistake, everyone knows it. It, it. Sometimes you can get away with a sour note when you're singing or a wrong line, but juggling, even the dog, you know, they come along and they and they know that you have that you've messed up. So you you tend to be a little concerned about making mistakes. Uh, it's you know like these. The woke millennials that I was talking. About. Oh, whoa. would you would, would you would you grab that for me?
1: He did this mad juggling act right in front of. Him.
2: <laughs> and just throw it back up everywhere. Good. All
1: right.
2: Whoa, whoa, catch that. Ah! Oh, when it matches, go ahead. Throw it back. Here. Good. Whoa!
1: Ah!
2: <laughs> yes. They bowed. Second row. Oh! oh no! It's gone. It's gone. <laughs> help me! Help! 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 <laughs> All right, from the back of the room, ladies and gentlemen, all the way. (laughs) I'm dead. I'm dead. Uh, Oh, bless you. Oh, no, and I missed it. I missed it. Wait, it's coming back to you. Hold on. Hold on. Okay, one more time. There we go. All
1: right. Back to juggling.
2: You may have noticed that at the beginning, I'm showing off. My goal, my action in an acting sense is to be impressive. As soon as I drop it, that changes. Eh, I'm not cool anymore. But it becomes a conversation. It becomes actually more interesting. You were more involved physically, and it was more surprise. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't plan for it to go through my legs, but it, it went there. It had a funny spin on it. Then,
1: right onto the Commonwealth
2: Club sign. And it matched. Come. So the idea there is, uh, if you can change, like a juggler, if you can change your point of view from a mistake, oh my, they know I'm no good, which I think is where most of us tend to go, to a mistake, oh good, a moment for connection whether it's juggling or whether it's being accidentally offensive. It's a moment for connection. Thank you.
1: You're here. Thank you so much. Well, our grateful thanks to Jeff Raz for this wonderful discussion and interactive uh, presentation on the Snow Clown, cartwheels on borders from Alaska to Nebraska. Thank you, Jeff Raz. And we also thank our audiences here as well as those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 116th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.